Hey guys, today is all about making some noise. I am interviewing the author of the book, Make Some Noise, Andrea Owen, all about her birth stories, her coaching business. She was trained under Brene Brown, her very popular podcast, Make Some Noise, and about getting sober in the midst of having two small kids and a postpartum journey. So we talk about postpartum psychosis, generalized anxiety disorder, postpartum anxiety, postpartum depression, abuse, and sobriety. And we also talk about what it's like to have a breach cesarean and then become completely empowered, get a doula, learn all the things through ICANN and all the forums about a vaginal birth after cesarean. And let's see if she did it. Let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Before we get started, I would love to have you guys in Birth Story Academy. It is premier childbirth education for your hospital birth, no matter what the birth looks like that you're planning. So medicated, unmedicated, a wait and see attitude, a belly birth, an induction, there is a module for all of it. And I have a blank name tag at your seat waiting to put your name on it. And the best part about Birth Story Academy is that I get to be your virtual doula. You go into my private Facebook group where I interact with you every single week and cheer you on as you plan and prepare for the birth that you want, no matter what that looks like. So I hope you will go to birthstory.com and enroll in Birth Story Academy today. (laughs) Hi, Andrea. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Now, before we get started, because we are live on Fireside, is it Andrea or Andrea? So I am pronouncing first one. It's Andrea. Okay, I thought so, but I just wanted to make sure before I mispronounce your name the entire time. So, well, I like both. So I I typically don't correct people because I I like both. It makes me feel kind of special to have like two different pronunciations of my name. So I don't take offense. (laughs) The more formal Andrea. 
Right. Andrea and Paris. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so I love it. Well, Andrea, thank you for being on the birth story podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and hopefully I'm we'll excited have to tell the story. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So this is the birth story podcast, but we're all about like the platform is all about education through storytelling and empowering women. And that's really like you're so aligned with the the life work that you do. And then you're a mom too of two mm-hmm. littles. And so I really was hoping we could talk about all of it. Like um, you guys, I invited Andrea on. We are both lovers of Peloton. We're moms of two. We're authors and podcasters. And so today we're going to talk about all the things. So let's do it, Andrea. Yes, I can talk about any of that. And I'm excited um, because my birth story is definitely down the road of empowerment and education and my own journey and getting to that place because I was not in that place when I first started having babies. Okay. Well, let's kick it off with like, who are you? Right. How does, yeah. how do people find you? A lot of people already know who you are because you have a big old podcast and yeah. some books out in the world. But for those that don't may never have heard of Andrea Owen, can you just kind of walk us through your professional, like who you are? Yes. So I primarily, my community of women is primarily women who are interested in um, women's empowerment in sort of all things, self-help, for example, on my podcast right now, in 2022, I'm, I'm doing it in kind of block themes. So the theme that we're doing right now that we're walking into is like, is answering the question, how do we heal ourselves? So I'm having a lot of therapists come on, psychotherapists who their expertise is around trauma and, and healing, you know, inner child wounds and, and, and those types of things. And then I'm going to move into relationships and things like that. So my audience primarily is interested in just how do we become better humans? How do we become better women? And I also have written three books, which you can kind of see behind me. My latest one is called Make Some Noise, and that centers around not just women's empowerment, but a little bit from a feminist perspective. In other words, I had to kind of talk about the elephant in the room, and that's the culture that raised us. And I'm also um, trained and certified in the work of Dr. Brene Brown. If anyone is familiar with her work around connection and shame and vulnerability, I've been trained um, and certified since 2014, and I run her um, her modality. It's called the Daring Way. And so I'm going to have a couple retreats this year. Fingers crossed that that works out. And um, and and I also speak on stages, typically more often when there's not a global pandemic. But I speak around topics around confidence and also recovery. So I've I've been in recovery from, I've been sober for 10 years, but I've also been sober from uh, love addiction and eating disorder and codependency for about 15 years. That is very relatable to so many people listening, right? Like you're hitting yes. all the buckets. Like if it's if it isn't an eating disorder and it wasn't addiction of some kind, then of course we're getting into motherhood and parenting and everything you said about trauma and relationships. So, I mean, I love that you have all of these big these are big things to tackle. I don't even yeah. know how you hold space for it in your heart. Cuz it's so these are just so big, but I am so excited to share with the world and with my podcast and my listeners um, your book. So, um, where can they get it? 
Anywhere books are sold, um, and obviously online. Um, I'm also I'm always encouraging people to support independent bookstores if you can. Um, but really, anywhere books are sold, it's called Make Some Noise. Okay, all right, everybody, grab a copy of Make Some Noise. All right, and can you talk a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, so that's what I was talking about with um, the different themes that we're doing, and I I typically interview experts, but also I every once in a while I will bring someone on and I coach them on the show. Oh, like a live well coaching? I, yeah, okay. and they bring a topic, and um and I and I coach them. I haven't done that since a little bit last year, but I also do some mini sods where it's just me talking for about ten minutes about either like a really amazing podcast I listen to or a book I'm reading or just something that's going on socially in the world that I wanted to sound off on. Okay. So I'm going to link to all of those in the show notes when I publish this episode through like the podcast players, right? But for everyone listening right now, like if I'm opening up my phone, what do you want us to type into our podcast player to subscribe and follow your podcast? The easiest and quickest way to find me is go to Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen, and it should pop up. The show was called Your Kick-Ass Life for like seven years, but I I changed the name about four or so months ago to Make Some Noise. Okay, perfect. I love the name. I really, I mean, I really, really, it's so hard, like being an author of a book too. I mean, I just struggled over the, it was like, I could write 529 pages, but struggling over the title. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So make some noise is a really, really good title. So out of all the things, like what do you, what it, what gets you going the most? Like if you were like, okay, I can only do one of these things. Like what, what are you most Um, passionate about? It's really a toss up. It's like asking me to choose between my two children, which Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do, but (laughs) between speaking up on stages and writing books. And they're both very different mediums, if you will. Like, yeah. you know, book writing is is a lot of solitude. <laughs> it's a lot of by yourself in your own head. But I love speaking on stage and also talking to people afterwards and hearing their stories and, and seeing them be inspired and engaged and uplifted is just makes my heart explode. Okay. Yeah. I know it is kind of like choosing between your two kids. Like there's no way, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So, all right. Now I'm going to dig because how old are your children right now? Well, they're ancient compared to probably um, the ch- the ages of the children of the your primary audience. So my son, my firstborn is 14 and mm-hmm. my daughter, Sydney, is 12. Okay. 14 and 12. The reason mm-hmm. I asked that is because I'm doing math in my head on your sobriety journey of 10 oh, years. Okay. Yeah. They okay. were littles when I got sober. Okay. Mm-hmm. So can we, let's back it up then because I want to hear a little bit more about your life and then how, like, if if addiction was part of your life prior to getting pregnant or going into motherhood, and then kind of go through that pregnancy journey and then into motherhood. So I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna start a little bit further back than I think I was planning on starting okay. with with your birth story because I just don't think we can get there without knowing the foundation, right? Yeah. So well, it was like my own rebirth story, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. So let's back up to, let's say like 18 years ago, right? Like four years or so before your son was born. Where were, where were you in life and what did that look like for Andrea? 
So that would have been, um, I had just gotten married the year prior to my first husband, someone I had been with since I was 17. We've been together for a long time. And uh, candidly, my intuition told me not to marry him. And I did it anyway, thinking that our problems would be solved if we got married and had children, which I think is a, is a, a hope that many people have. And so that was around 2004. That's where I was at. I was in my, how old was I? Mid-20s at that point. Yes. And just starting my life and just excited for life, but also had some intrepidation. And I was um, extremely codependent at that time and also was still kind of flirting in and out with my eating disorder. Uh, Anytime my life would go into crisis, I would rely on it. And um, my love addiction had kind of gone away because I was married and I was not being unfaithful to my husband, (laughs) although he was being unfaithful to me. Um, So yeah, that's where I was. Still in a lot of internal turmoil, but you would never know on the outside. Gosh, okay. So much I'm relating to right now. (laughs) Parallel lives. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay, So, so fast forward into that relationship, like... At what point were you, did you plan a pregnancy? I planned a pregnancy with my first husband Mm -hmm. and we were talking about conceiving our first child. We always knew we wanted to have children. I was on birth control pills for forever and I had, I had gotten my last three pack of pills, three months, and then he had an affair with our neighbor and got her pregnant. And so that's why we split up. I swear, Heidi. (laughs) And it got worse. (laughs) So I was wondering, I was like, I'm trying to put timelines together here. So I was like something, you know, that was in 06. I found out in February of 06, he had started seeing her in July of 05. And then I had, I had suspected that something was going on. He denied it. There was a lot of gaslighting going on him telling me that I was crazy and that there was nothing going on. And it was very obvious. I had the, the the signs were all there, except that I had not caught him red handed. Yeah. And so I actually moved out because I felt like I was going crazy and I got my own apartment and then things kind of got better and he had agreed to work on our marriage. And, and then I found out, I called his cell phone because um, he was supposed to come over the next night for dinner because we were still seeing each other, even though we were separated Yeah, and we were still doing the things that married people do. Um, and she answered his phone, his girlfriend, and he had been living a double life, also lying to her and telling her that I... Um, was refusing to divorce him. And that's why we were still living together for so long because she lived across the street. It's just this I was going to be like, how close? Like like pulling out of the driveway in the morning to go to work and is like, hey, neighbor, you know, yeah, like that he close? Told her, he told her not to come because she was like, why is your wife still living with you if you guys are getting divorced? And he's like, well, she's having a really hard time. He had never filed. <laughs> he never even told me he wanted a divorce. Oh my gosh. Um, you guys, if your gut says something it's it's it is something Something like I don't I don't think I've ever spoken to a woman ever that was like my gut intuition said blah 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 and it was wrong like everything was great like (laughs) that is our superpower we have it absolutely own it and if someone looks at you when you say this gut intuition and they say like you're crazy Mm -hmm. like double red flag. Like they're crazy. And that's honestly why I moved out because I, we got in this screaming argument. He would intimidate me with his, with his stature and size and which is abuse. And, um, I finally just like had a moment of calm. It was Christmas day, 2005. And 
there's a whole story behind the argument on Christmas day. And I said, I want to believe you, but everything inside of me is telling me otherwise. And I can't keep living my days like this. So yeah. I have to move out. And if you want to work on this marriage, let's work on this marriage, but I can't live you, live with you right now. Yeah. I felt like I was literally going insane. So and that's it's when I moved such out. a young age too, right? I was 27. No, at that point I was 30. I was still, that's still young. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Do you, you met when I was 17. Andrea, this is a, re- a weird question, but do you have like a jangle bracelet on? I do. Is it? Is I it can hear noise? it. Yeah. It's gone. Okay. okay, perfect. I was like, it's I'm hearing something. Ring. I was like, I'm hearing something jangling. <laughs> Jingle, jingle, jingle. Nope, it might not have been that because I still heard it a second ago. So it's okay. It might just be the um. It might be that this part, like when your um microphone is is um doing it, it might. It's not terrible audio. It's it's totally fine. So I just was like, I was like, if it's a jingle bracelet, though, I was like, maybe I'll have you take it off. Yeah, usually. Okay, I'll I'll my AirPods are very um temperamental it anything in the house like when my husband turns the car on it'll pick up in the car and it drives me nuts so it was like in a beat where I was like jingle bells jingle bells (laughs) so I was like well might as well just sing it out for a minute and then we'll see like what what happens okay um so and it's you know I'm having this laugh about jingles like right in the middle of this like dark time what were you doing what were you doing for work I was going to school full-time. I had gone back to college to um, finish my degree in exercise physiology and had left. um, Where was I working before that? I don't even remember. It was so long ago. But I had been not – and he worked full-time. And so he was – we had an agreement that I would finish my degree and then would go into the fitness industry. And I was confident that I would have, you know, a thriving career because I am that way. And um, so I was not working, but I was in school. I mean, I was carrying like 24 units or something crazy like that. It was a lot of school. A lot of school. Okay. So you're really in that like prime age of like crafting your identity, like Mm -hmm. asking yourself like, and building it. Who am I? What do I want to be? What am I becoming? And right in the middle of like building Andrea, like all these things around you are starting to kind of crash and make oh, that hard. feel impossible. Are you drinking at this point? Yes, but not um, not to the point where I or anyone would raise some eyebrows. Like I could I could take it or leave it at that point. Okay. My drug of choice absolutely was codependency. Okay. Um, it, it just and and my eating disorder too. I would restrict calories and I would purge at the gym just on the treadmill purge as many calories as I could by exercising, essentially punishing my body. But that was, that was what I was doing to cope. Yeah. When I, in 1997, when I was diagnosed with my eating disorder, it was labeled exercise bulimia. I don't know what terms they're Mm -hmm. using these days, but I like. It's also called, I think the DSM calls it EDNOS, which is eating disorder not otherwise specified because we don't qualify for anorexia because I was still getting my period. So I didn't qualify for anorexia, even though my hair was falling out. (laughs) Um, But I, and I also didn't, didn't binge and purge in the traditional way. Uh, So I didn't, so yeah, it was EDNOS. Yeah. I think it's really important to say that out loud. When I am coaching my doula clients through preparing for their birth, one of the things that we have to have a serious conversation about is the withholding of food 
when you're in a hospital and how unethical and how against science that is. And I just this week, I had to walk into a hallway, grab an obstetrician who was withholding food and say, she has a history of a severe eating disorder. It is unethical to withhold food from her. She's not even in active labor. And we need to adjust her induction preferences to include food. So like this whole eating disorder, I like to talk about because I would say the majority of women at some point have experienced some form of an eating disorder and it rears its ugly head when we're pregnant and our bodies are changing and growing. And then we get to the hospital and they're like, sorry, you can't eat for five days. And so thank you for sharing about that. And I try to be really open with mine as well. I got enough calories because I was a collegiate athlete, but I like loved to run 12 miles like for fun if I ate too much, you know, not, not healthy. I was like, I'll just go run a half marathon on random Tuesday, you know, um, because I ate a piece of bread. So, so here, so here you are, it's, you're young, but you're growing, you're building and it's dark. When do you meet the father of your children? Like, how does that unfold? So, well, and okay. (laughs) buckle up. Okay. I'm (laughs) ready. My husband and I split up and, you know, he was, he was in love with her and I'm like, okay, we're getting divorced. And we did. Well, he finally did file for divorce, but it wasn't even until like a few months after I found everything out. So needless to say, his girlfriend was pretty upset because he had also been lying to her for a long time. And um, she was pregnant. And she was pregnant. We could do the baby. a part two where we interview her on her, her. story. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to. That I was a joke. But felt I felt bad for her um, because you know she she'd been screwed over too. And and so anyway, I started dating, which is probably the last thing I should have been doing <laughs> at the moment. But I was like, I need a distraction, and I'm incredibly unhealthy. So <laughs> this works. Um, I'm changing my lighting here. There we go. And so I met someone great and I fell in love with him and it was like our second or third date. And he told me that he had uh, terminal cancer. He had non-Hodgkin lymphoma. It was devastating. He actually wasn't totally sure if it was terminal or not, but it wasn't looking great. And he was only like 32. It was, it was awful. And, um, and then things started to get kind of weird in that relationship. Like I was noticing some red flags. Like he didn't really have any friends except like a couple people in the apartment building he lived in. He was estranged from his family. Um, I didn't even meet any of his work colleagues. It was just all these kind of strange things. But I was in such a dark place that I just ignored it all. Still, I'm like, I would rather be in a terrible relationship than no relationship because I cannot be with myself and my feelings. Like, of course, I didn't know that consciously, but that's what was going on. So the long and short of it is several months in, I was really starting to suspect he was abusing um, painkillers. And I confronted him about it. And he said, yes, that he was, and he wanted to get sober. Um, And he thanked me for uh, just all of that kind of stuff. And then he did get clean. And here's the thing. If anyone is listening to this who's ever dated somebody who abuses opioids, I should say someone with a penis, they they tend to have a difficult time keeping an erection. So I had gone off the pill. Like, you know where this is going, right? I had gone off the pill because we hardly ever had sex because he was always so sick. And the times that we did attempt, he just couldn't keep an erection. And it was frustrating and sad. And and so we didn't have much of a sex life. So I wasn't worried about getting pregnant. 
And then he got clean and things kind of looked up, no pun intended. And um, <laughs> we went away to meet some of his friends up in the Bay Area. I was living, I'm from San Diego. This was all happening in San Diego. We drove up to the Bay Area and I met one of his friends who was also a colleague who were like these totally normal people. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, so he he isn't like an alien. Like he's he's normal and he he can get clean and he has these, these friends and um then we had sex and it was the one and only time that he actually finished. And I was like, Oh, I think I had my period like 12 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at my phone. Sure enough, it was December 12th. And I, my period had, had, um, it was like around December 1st or something like that. The, the, the moons lined up. And then a couple of weeks later, um, he relapsed. And he was using again, and then my period was late, and I took a test, and it was positive. And he was at first excited, and then three hours later was telling me to get an abortion, and then was excited, and it was just this turmoil. And I finally was like, I can't do this. Like My life is a mess. You're a mess. Um, if you're sick, I can't be the only one to help you. So I called up his aunt, who I had never met before, but I knew he was close with her. I got her phone number from his phone when he was in the shower. And I called her and I was driving home. We had, he and I had just gotten this huge fight about this child. And I called his aunt and I said, hello, aunt. I'll call her Janet. Um, you don't know me. We've never met, but I'm your nephew's girlfriend. And um, I, I don't know if you know that he's been struggling with a drug problem. And, um, you know, I've been helping him. And she's like, we, we do know about it. And we thought that he had gotten better. We had heard about you and knew that he was in a serious relationship and, I'm really sad to hear that he's using again. And I said, yeah, I think it got really bad when he started to get really sick with his lymphoma. And she paused and she said, oh, honey, he doesn't have cancer. And you're not the first girl he's lied to about that. Oh, my and God. I like, Andrea, I was afraid you were going to go there. Like, my brain was like, don't say that this was, you know. Holy and she said, but don't, and I'm like in the car, like mouth open, just like, what the, are, no, <laughs> no one does that. Like, no. no, I can, I can understand. I can wrap my head around drug addiction. I cannot wrap my head, head around lying about a terminal illness. Mm -hmm. And so she said, don't worry about it. You can wash your hands of him. I understand, you know, he's been through a lot of women and have, has done this. And I blurted out and I said, I'm pregnant. And, and she said, well, and she was child-free and God bless her, but she was like, well, you can just go to the clinic and take care of that. And I was like, <laughs> been down that road and I don't want to do that again. I was 31 and I was also in such a bad place. I just was like, I, I need to turn my life around. Like I need to just focus on myself. The long and short of it, he agreed to go to rehab and I gave him a second chance because I'm like, some people totally clean their life up. My dad did when I was 18. My dad got sober totally stayed sober forever, changed his life. Um, unfortunately, he met another addict in rehab and they fell in love and she had a trust fund. Um, and so we never spoke again. He ended up signing over his paternal rights just to be done with it. So he knew I had the baby. Um, and I met Jason after my husband now, after everything exploded with the fake cancer guy. And we had kind of known each other previously and we just started out as, as friends for months because I was like, I'm not dating anyone. 
I don't trust anyone, especially anyone with a penis. <laughs> oh my God. If you want to just hang out. Because I didn't have a whole lot of friends because up until then, my whole life had revolved around my ex-husband and that social circle. And if anyone has been divorced before, you know that that happens a lot in divorce. Like you lose sometimes your entire family because his family had become my family. It was it was horrible. So Jason was just my friend for a long time. And he, you know, we went on hikes, we made dinner together, we watched movies, we talked about love, we talked about relationships, I complained about my exes. Um, and then several months in, you know, I was pregnant. He sat me down. It was like the sweetest thing ever, like straight out of like a Nicholas Sparks movie. He just like said that he was in love with me. And he's like, I know the circumstances are unusual, but I'm prepared to take all of this on. And, um, if you'd have me. Oh my and God. So, cry, cry, cry. At first I was like, are you sure? <laughs> You want all this drama? <laughs> and he was there when I had Colton, my son. And then when Colton was two and I was pregnant with Sydney, um, well, so we got married when Colton was 10 months old. And then um, he legally adopted him in the state of California when I was like nine months pregnant with Sydney, our daughter, okay. and Colton was two. And he's the father that my son knows. And Colton knows about his biological father. I didn't want to lie to him about that. Yeah. But Jason's the only dad he knows, and we're a family. Mind-blowing. Like, I hope you use that emoji, like, all the time, where, like, the brain is, like, off when you're, like, texting. Is one of your books about fake cancer guy? Like, is it called Fake Cancer Guy? So all three of my books are, like, are nonfiction but prescriptive. They're, like, they're traditional self-help, but I'm writing a narrative nonfiction book that's a memoir with the whole sordid story along with like everything I learned, everything I ignored, everything that was going on underneath the surface. Cause it's been 15 years. So I have enough distance from it now to see things very clearly. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have another podcast, Andrea, that I has <laughs> nothing it's to about, do with like, birth. People that dated people with it's, cancer. <laughs> it's called Thanks It's the Trauma. And, you know, different, right? Um, But I have a a very unique story offline. I will, my audience knows about it, but I have a very unique story offline where I host this other podcast called Things It's the Trauma with two other girls with the same story. So if you find two other people that have like fake cancer guy stories, you know, it's, it can be a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll talk to you about that offline. But I mean, I am just like every word that you're saying, I'm like, "Mm -hmm, yep, yes. Except for like, I don't have a Jason, you know, (laughs) but, but some of the other stuff is there. (laughs) Some of the other stuff. This is like the best coffee with a girlfriend I've ever had. Um, All right. So now that I've like kind of got that picture when you were with Jason, I'm assuming when you're with Jason and you're pregnant, like like, like alcohol, drugs, like this is not part of your life. No, it okay. wasn't. Mm-mm. All right. So now I want to back up and let's go to sitting on the couch with Jason, Nicholas Sparks moment, and you're pregnant and you're 31, you said, right? I was 31. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. What did you know about birth, pregnancy, epidurals, unmedicated, like what did you know? Did you even have time in your life story to even think about, 
your pregnancy or giving birth or what that could or might look like for your body? Very little. So the only thing that I knew was like, I knew how babies were made. Um, (laughs) I knew how birth worked. I also knew that my mother, so my, my maternal grandmother had 11 children, Wow, 10 of them she had at home with midwives and one she had in the hospital and that baby ended up, I think coincidentally passing away of SIDS. And my mom said that my grandmother blamed the hospital for her whole life, (laughs) Um, which is terrible. But, and then my mother had three of us, I'm the youngest, and she had us all unmedicated. Um, And she had told me, the only thing I remember her telling me about her births when she gave birth is that they were very fast and that she didn't want anyone around her. She got to the place where she just wanted, this is how she said, she's like, all I wanted to do was go out into a field and squat by myself and have you babies and then have people help me. And I was like, well, that's weird. <laughs> and, then I, and then I went into labor and I'm like, okay, now I understand. It makes sense. All totally. the sense. Did you and Jason do like any childbirth classes or like read a book? Like, did we you have did. a plan? We did, but then I was... I don't know how far along I was. I was definitely in the 30 weeks-ish when they told me he was in a breech position. Okay. Um, and if he stayed that way, then I would I would have to have a cesarean section. And I remember asking my OB, well, can I try and birth him in the breech position? Um, and they had told me that he was a frank breech. Mm-hmm, which is like butt, and, butt presenting. The ideal, right. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he said, you will not find an OB that will allow you to deliver him vaginally in San Diego. I would say untrue, but okay. And I said, okay. Okay. I was very trusting of them, yeah. but also really disappointed. I didn't want to have a cesarean section. Um, I, I knew how how much risk was involved. I certainly didn't want to have more than one because I knew that I wanted to have multiple children. And um, we tried different things to have him, to flip him. You know, I did like the, like candle with the, I don't even remember. I was doing some like. Moxibustion. It's called moxibustion <laughs> from your acupuncturist. He, he didn't yeah. move. He was wedged in there. Happily. He was happy Frank breach, which is like butt. And so, you know, we'll talk about it in a minute, like pike position, which can cause some significant like kind of hip things when they're tucked into that position the whole time. So did you do what's called an external cephalic version where they try to manually turn the baby on the outside? I decided not to do that. No, I decided against it. I was too nervous because I had heard stories of, um, you know, strangulation and then it just, because, and then I had heard that sometimes that's why they're stuck in yeah. that position is because it's so tight and yeah. that's why they they can't spin on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was enough for me to just say, no, thanks. I'll yeah. take the cesarean. That is absolutely true. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Like I always say like breach isn't bad. Like they're facing the world sometimes, right? Or they're, they're upright like they're, but yes, you have an umbilical cord that's attached to a placenta and that could be wrapped around their neck five times or, you know, usually two times, but wrapped around their Mm -hmm. neck or their body or their arm. And then that makes a tight, tense cord where like 
they're in a position for a reason. Now, yeah. I cannot even, because we're live, I have to like absolutely say this is, um, and I'm going to publish this recording, is that I, you know, 14 years later, I am a supporter and an advocate for vaginal breech birthing. The problem is, is exactly what your obstetrician said. Like, I feel like you could probably find one, right? And home birth midwives can do a vag, would do a vaginal breech extraction typically. They don't teach it. So it's that's, not that's that it's unsafe. Mm -hmm. It's that people are not, like most of our medical providers are, are not educated on how to deliver a vaginal breech baby. There's an organization with two doctors, Breach Without Borders, and they do speaking engagements all over the world, presenting the data and the evidence, and they teach providers how to do vaginal breach births. But in my city, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I mean, I think we have like one at a hospital, mm -hmm. but then the hospital doesn't allow it, you know? So it's like, even if you can find an OB, the hospital, so they'll say, if you're coming in pushing, you know, well... You know, but like if you're not pushing, like don't come in if you want a vaginal breech yeah. birth. So anyway, so you found yourself in that cycle of right of like I want to say cesarean or listen to me cesarean breech presenting vaginal birth can be just as safe as a cesarean birth right. in that situation, but we don't know. Babies are keepers. Right. And of it was knowledge. also my first baby, um, and I also I should mention. I had chronic hypertension even when I wasn't pregnant. I was on medication. It runs in my family um, and I was not a smoker or like I had no other variables of risk factors except that it was this genetic predisposition that I had and I was put on pregnancy safe blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. And so they were also worried about that. I mean, that was, it's a, it's a yep. pretty big red flag for pregnant women. And I, I, at that point, I was disappointed that I had to have a cesarean, but I trusted, I trusted them enough that it was for a very good reason that, yes. that I would be doing this. Absolutely. And as a doula who watches these go down all the time, right? I will, I'm the first one to tell you, if you have a planned cesarean section, it can sometimes be an easier recovery than a long vaginal birth with significant vaginal tearing. That can be a harder recovery than just a routine planned cesarean section. Yeah. And so, okay, so you and Jason are like, okay, baby's breech. He's Colton's choosing how he wants to come into this world. We need to keep you safe with your mm -hmm. hypertension. Did you, but did you go into spontaneous labor or did you make it to your okay. scheduled C-section? 36 weeks, four days. I was no, afraid. 37, 37 weeks. Was it 36 or 37? I'd have to, I'd have to look. So he was due on September 5th and his birthday is August 11th. So okay. The math. <laughs> yeah. So about, I would say, I would call you 36 weeks. He, he, he just missed the preemie mark. I think he, by like a handful of days is what they told me. Yeah. So I was sitting by the pool at my in-laws house. Um, well, Jason's parents house. We weren't married yet. And my water broke. Okay. And I hadn't even packed and I was at their house and luckily they were closer to the hospital and I was terrified because I was, I did not feel like I was ready. I was not ready for this delivery. I was not ready for, to be a mom. I wasn't ready for him to come. Like I wasn't ready for my life really what was going on, but I didn't know. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of scary. So we got to the hospital and well, I'll let you ask, but yes, I had spontaneous rupture membranes. Okay. 
So, and I would even call that preterm premature rupture of the membranes also, because I did the math that would have put you five weeks early. So that would have been 35, maybe 36. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I would have that, that when they said you were right past the preterm, then I would, maybe you were like 35 and six or something like that, you know? So almost five, I think he was five pounds, eight ounces. He was five. No, he was five, five. Five, five. Hey, that's mm-hmm. a pretty good size for early. Mm-hmm. That would have been like a nine pound baby if you had gone all the way, <laughs> got all the way to term. This is typically what we see happen though, right? Like our bodies are so smart. Like you are having hypertension. I wouldn't call it gestational hypertension because it was existing before you got pregnant, but like, and our bodies are smart. At some point yeah. your body's like, Hey, Colton's safer on the outside than on the inside. So let's get to it, you know? So you have a scheduled Mm C-section. It was scheduled. And you're like, hey, do you make the phone call that's like, hey, my water just broke. Like, what did you do? You just, you didn't even call. My mother-in-law said, just go. Because it was, it was not like a trickle. It was, it was a lot. Yeah. I wasn't having any contractions and, and it made sense because we were so close to the hospital by where they lived. And we went in and I was in my bikini, (laughs) these little short shorts and a tank top because we were by the pool. Welcome to San Diego. And I know. (laughs) And I had my flip-flops on and I'm standing at the desk at triage and the desk is like up to here. And I told her, I said, my water broke, you know, it's my first baby. And she said, are you sure? And I said, I'm, I'm standing in a puddle of it right now. If you want to come around and check, because it was like a substantial (laughs) puddle and I had ruined my rainbow sandals. And I was so disappointed because they're like real leather. And I'm like, I don't think you can come back from like amniotic fluid on leather. (laughs) Maybe not. But you know what? I think that the rainbow, like, isn't it like headquartered, like right outside San Diego, like San Clemente or something, you can just run over and get a new pair. Yes, I did end up getting a new pair. But yeah, and then they kind of ushered us into a room. I was very scared. Um, And they, whoever, you know, it was the OB on call and he was great. I really liked him. But one thing I noticed, and anyone who's given birth probably can relate, I couldn't believe that there was like no sense of urgency. Like there was, because my water had just broke, I don't even think they had checked me at that point because they knew that I they were going to take me in for cesarean. So it's like, why bother? It doesn't matter. But I remember laying on my side, clutching the hospital bar and I was I'm, I'm probably, I was maybe around, I'm going to guess based on my second birth, I was like in the four to five centimeters at that point. Like it was happening very fast. Wow. Just and like your mom. And the OB, my husband and the OB were chatting and I was like, uh, uh. <laughs> 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 somebody help me. And I had no idea what was going on. Oh I my. was unprepared. So you were doing what your mom did, which was have a really fast labor. And we literally follow our our moms. Like I always say, if you know your bio mom, ask her, how did the first birth go? Because, you know, you probably have that moment on the table where you're like, oh, I see how she wanted to be in a field all alone. Like, get me out of here. I was extremely irritated (laughs) that they were having just like a casual conversation about football or something because they were waiting for an OR. Like they weren't, I mean, it wasn't just like, we'll get to you when you get to you. Calm down. (laughs) (laughs) They were waiting for an OR and that's what the holdup was. And, but I don't remember them asking me, like, are you having contractions? They, they probably did not even think that I would be having contractions at that point. Yeah. Well, you were. I was. So 
How would you describe your cesarean experience? Like when you look back, like, were you scared? Were you empowered? You were scared. I was scared. Um, And I think I didn't have a lot of preparation because he came early and I didn't, I didn't look anything up on YouTube. I didn't ask other people, like, what are the, what's the procedure? Like, what are the steps? I asked what that smell was. And somebody said, it must've been a nurse. She said, do you, do you really want to know? And then I was like, oh, that's probably the smell of my burning flesh. <laughs> With the cautery. Yeah. It was, it was awful. And and I just, um, Jason peeked over the curtain a little bit and he's, he was, his face, I could gauge like, this is not, you know, something that he would want to watch. And then they brought him up and his, his legs, he was still stuck in that Frank Breton, that Pike position. Yeah. And they kind of like pulled his legs down and they popped Pop back truck. up. And, <laughs> and then, um, and then I had a hard time coming off the anesthesia too. I had like the trembling and the shakes for a long time, which I did not like. And my nose itched like crazy. So it wasn't it wasn't my favorite day. I'll be honest. It's it okay. Was... It's okay. But I'm going to put you on the spot as the author of Make Some Noise, right? Mm-hmm. So if you had to make some noise about a cesarean experience, like if you could go back in time, are there is there anything that you think you could have done to yeah. to like tell the next birthing generation that could have helped you not be so scared as someone who's walked that path now already? Um, any suggestions? Yes. I would have loved to ask one of the nurses to walk me through very gently and quietly every single thing that was happening because I felt like I didn't have any control over my own body. Like they were going to do whatever they needed to do to keep me and this baby safe, which is a great thing. Like, come on. Like at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, that's what we want. Yeah. But I was terrified. I'm sure the cortisol was running through my blood. I would have liked to have that. And I would have, I would have wanted to have maybe that same nurse just tell me everything's going to be okay. Because I was a little bit out of my mind. Like first baby, major surgery. Um, and, you know, I was still this – just kind of to put into context – if anybody's has a similar experience, I still was in a lot of trauma over like all the relationship stuff that had happened to me. And I was not well hundred percent mentally and emotionally. I just needed a little bit of more handholding. Yeah. Birth has a way of ripping you wide open. Like in another life I talk about like, and I mean, I'm only 43, so maybe from 43 to 53, but like in 17 years of being a birth doula, what I see over and over again is if there's unresolved trauma, I'm like, it's really hard for me to coach you through an unmedicated childbirth, let's say. Yeah. Or a cesarean. I mean, things I can, can get dark. The postpartum period can get dark if we haven't resolved some things, you know. So let's talk about that. Because I know we talked about we're we're getting to a place of of where you're at now, right? Mm-hmm. In your journey, right? We're never there, we're never final, but in this, we, we, you've climbed a big mountain, mm-hmm. and you've seen some some peaks and some really beautiful views up here, right? And 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 accomplished so much, but but before you were able to become this Andrea, 
you know, I'm I'm assuming we're about to take a a downhill turn mm-hmm. in your um mental health and grief and trauma catching up with you. So you get home with Jason and you have a newborn baby and a fairly new relationship, which mm-hmm. I think I can't speak for him, but I severely underestimated the impact that that would make on having a new baby and just sort of the awkwardness of, of me feeling like, should I do all the work because he's mine? Um, it was this really awkward dance for a long time, especially like those first handful of months. And I have generalized anxiety disorder. I was diagnosed in 2002. I was on medication for several years and then got off the medication when I got pregnant with Colton. So I'm unmedicated for a clinical anxiety disorder, (laughs) just had a baby. And I, I wouldn't call it a traumatic birth, but it was, it was a, it was a challenging birth. And, um, I dropped into severe postpartum anxiety and some psychosis. Okay. Um, my mom was staying with us, thankfully. And um, and P.S. He was a he was a fussy baby. I think because he was born early, there was like either some GERD or the pediatrician said it couldn't be GERD because he'd be crying all the time. I'm like, but he's he's kind of crying all the time. <laughs> he cried a lot <laughs> um, and spit up a lot to the point where I was, and I was nursing and that was hard at first time mom, but I was very determined. Even when my mom was like, honey, maybe you should. And I was like, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this to this baby. But I, there was one time where I was in the hallway. I remember and I was holding him and I was crying and my mom's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, they're coming to get him. And she was like, who's coming to get him? And I'm like, I don't know. I think it's, and I said the fake cancer guy's name and I'm like, he's going to come and he's going to take him when I'm sleeping and I'm not going to be able to protect him. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Um, and it was very real. I was convinced. And I remember the look on my mom's face, like, have you ever been in a position where you're not well and it's either your best friend or your sister or your mom kind of looks at you like, oh no, this isn't, this isn't good. She had that look on her face and it was enough to scare me, for me to have enough um, clarity in that moment to realize I was unwell. Yeah. I've had a couple of those in the last couple of years. It's scary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I still would not put him down. Like he, I was, I was convinced, Heidi, that somebody was going to take him. Yeah. What did you do to get help? Um, I can't remember. Like that part is totally fuzzy. I must have. I cannot even remember. I'd have to ask my mom or Jason. They would probably know. That's a good question. You know what, Andrea? It's normal that you don't know from someone who runs also a trauma podcast. There's this thing we call the black hole. And literally it's a coping mechanism where we Mm -hmm. black it out. So that we can move forward. And then later in like EMDR or different types of therapy, we can go back and we can we can find it. But it makes total sense to me that you wouldn't have those memories. Right. I remember going back to therapy and seeing my therapist that I had I had known and trusted for a long time. And I remember because um, because I brought 
Colton with me and I would nurse him, you know, when I'm having sessions with her and, and she was so excited to see him. So I do remember that. I don't think I went back on medication and I have a feeling it was probably my own choice because I was nursing and I didn't trust anything, partly because he was so fussy and, um, and, and barfy. I just, I probably wanted to just power through, which in retrospect might not have been the best choice, but the choice I made at the time. Since you can't remember what you did with severe postpartum depression, anxiety, and psychosis, right? Mm -hmm. As a coach, as someone who wrote a book, make some noise and host the podcast, what would you tell, like, like we have 100,000 women listening today on the podcast. What do you want them to hear if they're experiencing severe postpartum depression, anxiety, rage is another one that we didn't Mm -hmm. mention, but postpartum rage, postpartum psychosis, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. Like I want to give them a hug, but what do you want to tell them? (laughs) Yeah. Tell someone that you trust, even if you create like an anonymous Facebook profile and go into some groups. Um, I'm sure that you have some uh, resources for people where you can tell people what's going on to people who understand and can give you some really smart advice. Because I remember one time, it's funny how you remember like the really hard things. I remember one time I had come out of it a little bit and I was either at like a mom's group or something and, and I was sharing this other woman had either a newborn or or an infant. And I was talking about how hard it was. And I said, yeah. And I was in a moment of transparency. I said, there are days where he's been crying for so many hours. And I have that thought, like, maybe I should just throw him out the window. And she gasped so loud. And like the shame that washed over me, like, and I was not at a place where I would ever think about acting on it, but it was like those intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. you know, that some people have Uh, anyone with anxiety who's had severe anxiety knows what those intrusive thoughts are. and, And sometimes they can get pretty severe. And I remember, I think that some, before you have children, no one can describe for you the, the anguish that comes with sleep deprivation a crying newborn and not just any newborn, but your own. Mm-hmm. And that sound biologically that does something to our bodies. It does something to our brains. You cannot describe it. And even now when I hear a baby crying of any age, whether it's a brand new baby, unless it's like birth and the baby cries and you're like, <gasps> like I still, I cry. Cause I'm like that relief of hearing that baby cry. But anytime it's like a movie or a TV show where there's a baby and you know, we can tell the different cries. There's a baby in something that's, you know, either he's hungry, either they're hungry needs to be picked up, needs to be changed, any of it, like I still, and I think this is probably common for lots of mothers, even maybe even women who don't who choose to not be mothers, I still am like, somebody pick that baby up. Somebody give that baby a boob or a bottle. Somebody <laughs> pick the baby up. Like I, I can't be with it. I can't. And I don't know if it's just normal or if it's like from my own trauma, like if there's a baby crying that needs to be picked up, I have to leave the room. I cannot be with that sound. It's because of the urge to help. Yeah. Not because I hate it, 
because the, the urge to help is so overwhelming. Yeah. The the connection, whether you are the bio mom or the adoptive mom, I will say that too. But like the connection when you're when you're parent, when you're the mom, you're the parent and that responsibility, like it's we can't describe it. But I am so thankful that you said to reach out, confide yeah. in someone, talk to someone. That is so important. The My right person, the right not person. just some random mom that you meet at a because because I because of that anecdote that I told you about the way she gasped and yeah. I felt so ashamed and I was yeah. like I'm never telling anyone this again, not even a therapist, because I am a bad human. I'm a and, bad mom. And as a doula, like if I was your doula and hopefully you were confiding in me as your doula, I would have talked to you about the difference between an intrusive thought and an actionable thought with a plan, right? And how those things can be different, but like the different steps that we could take to lessen. Like someone who has generalized anxiety disorder, like you, like me, anyone who's suffering from postpartum, those thoughts are not going to go away. They just don't. It's unrealistic to say, I'm never going to have an intrusive thought, right? But we can lessen them. We mm-hmm. can quiet them. And and honestly, then sometimes we can listen to them and address them in a healthy way, like in therapy too. So at some point though, it sounds like, like at what point were you like, I'm going to self-medicate over here? That's a good question. Not that I it was a conscious decision. Yeah, I don't think it got unhealthy until he was well into infanthood, okay. um, like crawling, walking stage. I I wasn't nursing anymore. I remember that. Okay. And um, and it's my drinking started to pick up speed, but it didn't really get alarming until after my daughter was born. So I got pregnant again when Colton was 15 months old. Woo. Close together. Now, were you and Jason trying? Yes. Okay. So you were like, let's have a baby. I'm one of those very, very blessed people. And I know that this is not everyone's experience, but um, it was super easy. First try. Okay. Done and done. How'd you tell him? We took the pregnancy test together. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. And I turned it upside down and we waited and I flipped it over and I was like, oh, just like that. Did you think you were pregnant? Like, were you like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be positive? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I don't know. I'm both mine. I just knew. I was like, I don't even need to look. You know what I mean? I mean, I was still surprised. I was still like. Well, and I was, I'm one of those people, my period was regular, like clockwork all the time. Yeah. So when it wasn't, yep. Yep. You were like, okay, it's not here. And Mm -hmm. I, and I know. Okay. So now with Sydney, having had a previous cesarean section, Mm -hmm. were you like, okay, that was safe. I mean, you said it was scary and all those things, but were you like, let's just do that again and have another cesarean section? Or were you like, I want to have a VBAC and I want to try for a vaginal birth if this baby's head down? I didn't even know that term. I just assumed that, I mean, this is how clueless I was in the world of, of birthing and, and labor and, and that whole world. I just assumed that I could have a vaginal birth and nobody would question it. And then I talked to my OB and he was just matter of fact that like, okay, well, you'll have another cesarean. And I was like, excuse me. And then he explained that that's how we do it. And the, the hospital where 
both of my kids were born. It was actually the hospital that my my husband was born at. It was it's called Sharp Mary Birch in San Diego. It's a it's a women's hospital. It's a birthing hospital. Okay. And he said um, that's how they do it there. And and I was like, that's weird. And some I can't remember who it was. Or maybe I just heard about it because the business of being born had just come out. Yes, Ricky Lake. So this was 09. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. And I rented it. And I mean, if anyone's seen it, <laughs> it's, it is a crash course in American obstetrics. Yeah. And I was floored. And it's still relevant in yeah. 2022, unfortunately. Yeah. So I started doing some research. And back then, back in the day, if anyone remembers, if anybody was pregnant or having babies back then, um, babycenter.com was huge. So this was before, this was before Facebook had really taken off. You know, we had Twitter, but that was about it. And forums, this was long before Facebook groups, but the forums were like, you had Yahoo groups, that's way back then. And then also um, these websites like iVillage.com and babycenter.com was the hub for parents to be, um, or parents. And I was in some groups in there and they had some VBAC groups. And so that's where I learned about the, um, the organization of ICANN, mm-hmm. I-C-A-N. What is it? The International Cesarean Awareness Network, I think. I think so. I think yeah. that's what it stands for. And they had meetings in San Diego. So I was like, okay. So I took my happy pregnant ass over to these meetings and um, was just uh, eye-opened to the world of birth and natural birth and also birthing rights. Mm-hmm. Like I had no idea that as a human person, as a woman with a uterus, someone with a uterus, I had rights. And then I was encouraged to hire a doula, which I didn't get around to doing that until I was about 30 weeks pregnant. So I was already very pregnant and very indoctrinated <laughs> as to like, okay, your second birth is going to be a cesarean section. And she was amazing. Linda Goldsmith, she's retired now. Um, and she helped us. She talked us through everything and we made a plan. And she was very um, also well-versed in sort of playing the game, if you will, mm-hmm. not to piss off the doctors. <laughs> yep. It's a but dance. She told us what questions to ask. Um, she said, it's, it's, She's like, I'll go with you to your OB appointments, but I'm going to tell them I'm your friend or I'm your sister. You know, I'm not going to tell them I'm your doula. Yeah. She just, she knew the doctors there in San Diego. And so um, she told us what questions to ask. And they were, what ended up happening is towards the end there, I I had hypertension again, mm-hmm. but I was medicated for it and it was stabilized. Okay. Um, I also had a uterine sneakyae. Have you ever heard of that? I have no idea what that is. Very rare. I'm like 17 years. I've never heard that term. Every once in a while, I get an email from somebody who finds my post on Baby Center from 2009. And they, and this woman has it. It's super rare. It's scar tissue that sort of creates a clothesline in the uterus, like from one end to the other. Sometimes it's kind of like off to the side and doesn't matter. Mine was like across the uterus and they said, worst case scenario, and this is extremely rare, is that scar tissue um, impedes the growth of limbs. 
And so babies will be born with like missing fingers or something because it has like wrapped around their wrist or something. And I asked, is that scar tissue from my cesarean scar on the inside? And they were like, well, we don't know. And I'm like, well, where else is it from? Because <laughs> you hadn't had a diagnosis of like endometriosis? Never. Or anything like that? Periods, no PCOS, no no cysts, no nothing, no ectopic pregnancies. Okay. Tell me the term you used again, because I've heard the term uterine septum, which I think is different than what you said. So it's uterine synechia, and I believe it is spelled S Y N. E-C-H-E-A or something like that. Okay. If that's not right, that's close. Okay. And we'll link to it in the show notes because I'm so excited to do research because no doula client that's ever over a thousand that's ever crossed my path has had this. So very yeah, rare. Yeah, super rare. Well, it's funny because Jason saw it in the, I think it was at our 20 week ultrasound, whatever the one is where they can tell the the gender of your child um, and uh, or the sex of your child. And he, he saw it and he's like, what's that? And the the technician is like, I don't know, but I'll be right back. And you know, you can kind of tell there's like a shift in energy when like yeah. something's wrong. And then she left the room and we were like, oh my God, <laughs> is that another, is it like a twin? twin? A twin? That's what like, I would have thought. Grew? Like, what is it? It it was just white and you could see it. I, I've got to dig up her sonogram pictures because okay. it's in there. And, um, and we actually ended up seeing it after she was born in the placenta. It was very uneventful. <laughs> it was like, oh, there it is. It just, it looked like a piece of grizzle. Okay. Like on meat. Yeah. Okay. Like. But, but um, it could yeah, have were, so led to something. That was a risk factor. Okay. So there was that. There was the fact that I had hypertension, even though it was um, okay. stabilized. And then way towards the end, I was probably around 38 weeks at that point, they said that my placenta had calcified to grade three. Okay. And my doula was like, yeah, that's normal at this stage of, of the game. Like it's pretty normal. Um, but they were kind of using, they were using it as scare tactics. And so here's what Linda told us to ask. She said, go in there and ask, am I at risk? Like, is my life at risk? Is And Jason actually was the one to ask. He said, is my wife's life at risk or our baby at risk if we choose to have her go into labor naturally and have her body do what it was meant to do? And they said no. Great question. High mm-hmm. five to your doula. So they agreed. <laughs> they agreed to allow me to um, – to go into labor on my own. They did want to schedule the cesarean, which Linda said, just let them, just let them schedule it. Um, And so they, so her, Sydney's due date was September 18th. They scheduled her C-section for September 17th. Okay. um, Partly because my OB, and he flat out told me, he's like, I want to be the one to deliver your baby. And I was like, well, my schedule might not work out. The we thing, played the game. The the quotes, okay? I hope somebody writes a book on like shitty quotes that OBs say. Yesterday I got, well, that's what the science says. And I was like, oh my God, fuck you. Can we go go into the science then, please? Yeah. But please don't just say, that's what the science says, you know? Golly, yeah. and, and I want to be, be there. Off. I want to be there. The days after, were you like her due date? With all due respect, my body can do wildly amazing things without you present. I I did not have <laughs> the confidence to say that because 
I think I knew, and I would take baths with, you know, and I just, my gut told me that we were fine. Yeah. It was almost like she was telling me, like, I got this kind of voice of like, I don't know what all the hype is. <laughs> it's just fine. Like, it's I'm like, okay. way overreacting. I'm good. It goes and back so- to that intuition stuff mm-hmm. from like cancer guy, you know, yeah. like her intuition is the most powerful gift we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we do communicate with our babies. Absolutely. Or our babies communicate with us. Yeah. Absolutely. And so they did make me come in. I want to say it was every other day or every third day to monitor my amniotic fluid, to monitor the baby and all that stuff because of the calcified placenta and because, oh, and the other thing was that she was, she was small for her gestational age. And they said that she was in the third percentile for her gestational age. And funny story, after she was born, my, my pediatrician, who was our actual pediatrician, I came in and I remember I was like kind of half asleep and he was, he was holding her and he was smiling at her. And I was like, hi, Dr. Smart. And I, his name was literally Dr. Smart. And I said, I told him what they had said, how they were, how they had scared me and told me, you know, sternly like, well, she's in the third percentile for her gestational age for size in utero. And he looked at me and he said, do you know what we call those babies who are in the third percentile? And I was like, no way. And he goes, we call them normal. I love it. Oh, thank you, Dr. Smith. Because I, I, I felt like I was wrong for it. Like I had made this too small baby. I had high blood pressure. I had a calcified placenta towards the end of my pregnancy. Like how dare I use up all my placenta as needed? Right. Sydney, what'd you do? Took all the resources that your body grew, this organ that she needed. But listen, I'm so proud of you, Andrea. Like you went to ICANN, you went into all of these social media groups, like you did your education, you hired a doula, like your doula gave you the scripts and the tools to like ask the right questions, but then you went and asked them, right? Like I can't give you credit enough for that, right? Thank you. Because I, we give scripts all the time and then people are like, oh, I didn't. I forgot to ask. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I, it was fine. I mean, that was right around the time I was, I was like finally starting to feel empowered. And, and to be honest with you though, like at that time, there was also a lot of women like home birth was, um, and you would probably know this better than me, but it seemed like it was talked about a lot more on social media. And of course I thought that was beautiful and I would love to have done that. But for me, I felt like probably the best scenario for us would be to try a VBAC at a hospital. 1,000%. Honestly, because of my blood pressure. Yeah. And with multiple risk factors, like a home birth midwife wouldn't have taken you. Like they would have said, no, thank you, Andrea. Mm -hmm. Like you don't qualify for midwifery care in the home with all of these multiple risk factors. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe one would have agreed with that. Yeah. She was like, I agree with that. Blood, high blood pressure is not something you mess around with, Mm -mm. especially in a pregnant woman. Yeah. Nope. So we, it was September 15th. And so remember my, my cesarean was scheduled for the 17th. Uh Uh-huh. My due date was the 18th. And I was in the backyard, my son was back there playing and my mom was, was there again. And I was sitting backwards on a patio chair okay. and I kind of, you know, cause your back is kind of wonky. And I went to stretch my back and kind of stretched forward and felt a pop and then felt the gush. And because I had had that experience before, I knew exactly what was happening. And I was like, oh my God, my water just broke. And, um, I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
that she decided to come on her own two days before they were going to cut me open and, and get her out. And so Jason was on his way home from work and I called him and said, we're going to go as soon as you get here. And, um, I was excited. I was so excited. And the contraction started when we were in the car and I was on the phone with my doula and I said, they're manageable. I told her, um, they're here, but they're super manageable. They're like period cramps. No big deal. Okay. We were about 40 minutes away from the hospital. Oh, no that's traffic. a long drive in San Diego. It was Diego. a long drive. Mm-hmm. We were in Oceanside and had all the, had to go all the way down to like mm, central San Diego. Oceanside is like the farthest point of San Diego okay. North. And, um, got there and there's a picture of me. I, I stopped him to take a picture of me in the parking garage. And that was the last moment of like peace. <laughs> as soon as we got into triage, they were coming, they were coming faster. And that's when Linda got there, my doula. And they checked me as soon as they got me into a bed in triage. And I was four centimeters Wow. Like 90% effaced. And they were like, okay, you're going to be here for a while. You know, get comfortable. We'll get you a room. And Linda was like, it's going to be a while. She knew that hospital. She's like, it's going to be a while until we get you a room. And I was, it was happening. Happening. I was like, (laughs) oh, that's really fast. So we left. My water broke around 5.15 p.m. So at that point, it was probably 6.30. Okay. And so we got me into a room, maybe like an hour later, maybe not even that long. And um, Linda said, and I remember I excused myself to the bathroom because it was all these people in there and they were asking me so many effing questions. And I said, <laughs> I said, I'm not trying to be rude, but isn't all of this in the system? Like in in my file, like they were asking me questions that were already recorded. Like the answers haven't changed. They were like, "When was your when was your last um, C section? When was the first day of your last period?" And I'm like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> I was like being interviewed in like active labor. So I excused myself to the bathroom, and I was sitting in there, and I was like clutching like the you know there's like the handicap rails, mm-hmm. and I looked up and I looked in the mirror, and I remembered what my mom said. I wish that I would have just been able to go out into a field and have you guys on my own. And I, I realized this is what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back out into the room. I was like, I'm just going to sit here on the toilet and I'm just going to be by myself. And that's when I felt like the animalistic qualities happen, which so many people talked about. And granted, I hadn't experienced any of this before because I had been given the epidural epidural for my C-section when I was in early labor with my son. And so I remember like all my senses heightened and I'm like, somebody turned on the lights, <laughs> stop talking so loud. So they knocked on the bathroom door and they're like, can you come out? But I could hear them talking about my previous C-section, you know, like the doctor on call was like, okay, getting all the information. And I finally acquiesced and went back out into the room and got into the bed. And Linda said, I think you should probably check her again. And they were like, we just checked her an hour ago and she was at four centimeters. And Linda said, I have, I have been with 350 women in unmedicated births. I, I think that she's in active labor. And they were like, okay, fine. 
They checked me again and I was at seven. And um, and in transition, she probably could see you were in transition. Yes. And the nurse was like, you have been through 10 hours of labor in about an hour. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> right. Just get away from me. <laughs> Stop talking to me. My poor husband, he was like, you know, at my shoulder right here. And at that point, it's like, what, 730 or something. And he hadn't brushed his teeth until since 630 that morning. And I turned to him and I'm like, I need you to get like a mint or like some gum or something. <laughs> it's the senses. Like just, yeah. I could smell everything. I could like, I they did turn the lights down for me. And I just was in agony. And Linda said, because we had planned on unmedicated just to just to um, give us more of a chance of having a successful VBAC because the research did show that um, you're more likely to have a successful VBAC if you if you don't have an epidural. And she said, listen, in this case, I'm very confident that it's going to be fine if you do decide to get an epidural. It's probably going to slow it down. You'll have a chance to, what is it called? Um, when the baby like slowly comes down. Labor down. Labor down. Mm -hmm. Yes. She said, you'll have a chance to labor down. You'll have a chance to rest before the hard part comes. She's like, I'm going to totally leave it up to you. Um, and I was like, I will, I will take that epidural. <laughs> if I have your blessing. <laughs> and, and I trusted her implicitly. Yeah. I was like, okay. Because it was happening so fast. And she and I remember them talking, Linda, my doula, and the nurse. And they were saying her contractions are right on top of each other. Like she, she's not even getting a break. They were happening so fast, like Sydney. And the funny part is Sydney about my wanted daughter, to be there. She, ever since she was little, she would love to run really fast. And she says, Watch me fast. And that was like her thing that she would say. And so we joke now that like she was saying that in utero, like, Watch me fast. Like, watch how, watch how fast I can come down this birth canal. And um, so I got the epidural. And by the time, so I got the epidural and God, the contractions were <laughs> holding on to my husband. They checked me right after he walked out the door and I was at 10 centimeters. And she goes, you were at 10 centimeters before he administered that epidural. Yeah. So um, I am glad I got it. I, I had like a couple of hours to rest okay. and she, I only pushed for 20 minutes. She was born at 1047 PM. And your water broke at 515? At 515. Wow. Gosh. What an amazing. Had epidural, she probably would have come a couple hours earlier. Oh yeah. I mean, even faster, but I cannot tell you how many clients that I have that get epidurals at 10 centimeters. They're like, it's just going so fast. I just need to slow it down for like right. just a minute and just take a rest and take a nap. And that's one of the number one questions I get on this podcast is when, how late can I get an epidural? I'm like, I mean, unless I see head coming out of your vagina, like they'll probably mm -hmm. do it. Like they can get an epidural in pretty much until the very end. So yeah. it gave you some rest. It was a tool that you used to just catch your breath and yeah. ease your baby down. So and that I was you didn't so push. anxious too. Like yeah. I was, I was scared. Like I'd be lying if I didn't say like that I wasn't nervous that something could go wrong because the doctors had been telling me that they had been giving me every worst case scenario possible to try to talk me into having a repeat cesarean because they have more control of that. And I'm basically like in their eyes, I'm a liability. And so I was 
thinking about that. And also like my gut was telling me everything was fine and like these conflicting things happening and not getting a chance to just breathe through these contractions. I'm glad I made that decision to be able to just relax for a little while and, and kind of enjoy the experience too. And, um, and it had been a couple of hours. And then I remember, see, I don't remember anybody saying anything, but I remember them starting to set up for a vaginal birth. And I was like, <gasps> did I do it? Are we going to do this? And um, yeah. And I just, it was 20 minutes and she was out and they, um, it was amazing. Like we just watched the video of it a few months ago. We found, we found it. We thought it was lost, but we found it. And I think the thing that struck me so much about the video is when I was holding her, Linda was taking the video. We just stared at her for like 10 minutes, just could not take our eyes off of this baby. And, um, that's the that's the part that I think struck me so much about watching that is just in awe of this little tiny human that I pushed out of my body. Oh my gosh, you had all the experiences within your I mean really the journey of you from like being pregnant the first time, the grief and the trauma and like how that the birth kind of matched it. And then like I feel like the stage of life that you were in, like Sydney's birth kind of started to match that. Like as you were growing into your power and into your education and your advocacy, you know, and now here we are 12 years later and you're doing that every day for women in your career with your books and your podcasts and your retreat and all the things that you're doing with Make Some Noise. I mean, I can really see how your birds we're matching the stage in, of life that you were in and your growth journey. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's really beautiful. Um, let's, before we go, cause we'll wrap up in just a minute, but I really want to hear about Sydney's postpartum. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, cause I, I really am want to hear about your decision to become sober. So like yeah. kind of what happened in Sydney's postpartum period and then you making this decision to become sober. And then um, I would love to hear just a little bit of let's wrap it up in a little bow of um, the birth of your entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and what you're doing with your business. So can we, yeah. can we kind of go down that route? Yes. I'll give you the highlights. Um, she was, an easy baby. She was happy. Um, she was not fussy uh, in comparison with her brother. It was an easy recovery. I had no tearing at all. I just had some bruising. But um, this was a little bit of a red flag. For some reason, they prescribed me Percocet, which I thought was okay. You know, like <laughs> I didn't know how normal or abnormal that was, but um, oh, oh, with no tearing. I mean, it's not that no common. tearing. Like I, just some bruising. I, I want to say this too. So that hospital that I birthed at, at that time, I don't know what it is now in 2022, but they had, I think it was a 35% cesarean rate. Okay. And it was much higher for, you know, women who had had previous cesareans. And when I was, uh, when I was there, you know, afterwards and the, the lactation consultant came to see us and, and she was looking at my, my chart and she said, did you have a, a VBAC in this hospital? <laughs> and I said, yes. 
And she's like, good for you. Um, and that's all they said about it. But um, so yes, Sydney, we were all home. Jason went back to work. I um, had already finished my coat, my life coach training. I had done that in between babies and was excited about starting this new career. But I had two babies at home and was very conflicted about, uh, do I want to be a stay-at-home mother? I loved my children with all as much as the next mother. I didn't love the job of being a stay-at-home mother. It just didn't feel like it was for me. And I had enormous amounts of shame around that and because wanting to work, wanting to start a business. And so that was hard to, to grapple with. And uh, I still had a lot of unresolved trauma from my previous relationships, but I was distracted with these two babies. So it was an easy distraction. And, and that's really, I think in her infancy is when my drinking started to pick up. It was very much like the mommy wine culture, um, you know, wine at group play dates. And it was like kind of earlier and earlier that I would, I would, I would open up a bottle of wine to the point where I knew I had to wait until the Oprah Winfrey show was on until I could do it. And that was four o'clock in the afternoon. And so there was just these signs that were happening. And, and also my dad got sober when I was 18 and I knew what uh, 12 step programs were. I knew what a functional high bottom alcoholic was. And my gut told me probably when she was maybe one or one and a half, like if my gut said, like, if you don't do something about this, this is headed for disaster. Like you need to change, you need to change course. And I was mad. Because I didn't want to. Like I loved wine. I loved Corona with lime. I loved um, drinking beers when you go out on a boat. Like my in-laws have a boat, and I'm like, how do you not drink when you go out on a boat? Like, how is that possible? We love to go camping, and I'm like, how do you drink? Like, I mean, how do you not drink when you go camping? Like, there was all these scenarios where I I could not imagine my life without alcohol in it. That's- oh, you broke up. Andrea, hold on one second. Fine, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. Hold on. There and, you go. Um, oh, Andrea, we I lost you. We I oh, couldn't no. hear you. So the last thing I heard was um we how could you go out on a boat or go camping and not be drinking like yeah yeah that was the last thing I heard okay so I ba- I was just saying like I couldn't imagine my life without alcohol like that's the place that I was in when I and I think a lot of people um feel that way you know who really identify as being like the fun one or just in this culture we are obsessed with alcohol like we really are yeah. our, our culture revolves around it our, our social lives revolve around it I couldn't imagine and meanwhile Jason doesn't drink like he chooses not to so it wasn't hard for me to stop, but it really was hard for me. So I ended up, um, I called a friend who I had a lot of years of recovery and talked to her about it. And I was embarrassed and ashamed and thought she would be like, oh my God, like really you? And she didn't, it was like not a big deal. And so she gave me some advice and I tried to quit for like 30 days just as an experiment. I made it five days and was white knuckling it. And I was like, okay, that I think is all the research I need to do to know that I have a problem. And so I quit and it's been 10 years. Just like that. 
So you tried the initial 30 days. Did you just quit like that or did you go and do a recovery program or do AA or? I probably shouldn't. At the time, I think if I would have gone to rehab, I don't think I was ready to really unlock everything that had been pushed down. It wasn't until I was a couple years sober. I went to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, 12-step programs. Okay. It was super helpful for me the first few years. And um, yeah, that was enormously helpful and just sort of getting into the community of, especially of people who identify as women, non-drinkers, mm-hmm. whether they identify as an alcoholic or not. Yeah. It was enormously helpful. Yeah. I am a woman non-drinker. I've never been a drinker. Like I tried like once or twice in high school and it just ended disastrously. And That's so my husband. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. so. I'm like, you know what? I'm, I've got enough personality, I think, to pull through, <laughs> but I'm the only one of my friends. So I have sober friends and then I have friends who drink, but I am the only one I know who's just was a chosen non drinker mm-hmm. and it was not for like That's religious amazing. or reasons or anything like that. So yeah. I am so proud of you, Andrea. And I'm so pl- proud that you have shared your story about your history with food, your history with alcohol, your history with postpartum, your beautiful birth stories. Like this podcast episode is going to impact absolutely people's lives that are on their journey right now or are in their postpartum period or thinking about getting pregnant. And we're now, like these podcasts, like that's the new um, baby center forum that people are hanging out in, right? Like these are the stories that are empowering the next birthing generation. And so for that, I am very thankful for you being vulnerable and sharing your your stories. I hope that everyone picks up a copy of your book and I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. Um, And then when retreats get going again, I mean, like I am amped up. I'm like, I am ready for your retreat. Like everything that you said is all things me. I am ready to go and spend some time on one of your retreats. That sounds absolutely amazing. Now, I typically end every podcast and I ask people like, what's your favorite baby, baby product? But like, that was 12 and okay. I was like, cause 12 and 14 years ago, I was like, let's go for it. But then I was going to rapid fire you like a couple questions too. So, okay. um, what can you remember was a baby product, um, for Sydney and Colton that like really helped you and Jason? I think the one that I, and I still have it because, and I'm not much of a sentimental person, but it's, um, and I know there's so many on the market and it doesn't have to be this one, but we had the Becco baby carrier Okay. and I know the Ergo was- You still have it. I, I love still this. have it. I can't get rid of it because it. I carried Sydney in that thing. I got it when she was born and it was so helpful because I had another baby. Yeah. So it allowed me to be hands-free. I know a lot of people use the sling. Here's the reason I liked that particular one. And I'm sure there are others that are similar. It had, it was kind of like a backpack. So the Ergo doesn't have a piece of fabric that separates you and the baby. It's just, you know, like that goes over the baby. The Becco, I liked it because she could be sleeping and, you know, if she was on my front, I could, I could transfer her to Jason easier than if she didn't. Cause they were kind of like in a, like, it was like the entire papoose I was handing over. It made it a little warmer, but I liked that one the best. It was 
kind of expensive at the time, but we, it was well worth it. And she was in that thing until she couldn't fit in it anymore. It was her favorite place to be. Um, Sydney was the type of baby who, and she still is, she loves to be around people. She sleeps best if she's on someone. She was constantly wanted to be carried. So it was perfect. I love it. Okay. I'm going to link to it in the show notes and then I'm going to rapid fire like a couple of things. So um, one of your proudest moments as a parent. Oh my gosh. Um, You would think that I would have like one. I have a lot of them that are swirling around. Um, Probably when I hear that my children have stood up for themselves and done something brave and difficult. There's been a few things like that where I have been so proud of them, even if it was the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Isn't it great when our little babies become people? Little humans. Little yes. humans. It's awesome. If you go to a coffee house, what's your drink? Just regular coffee with cream and sugar. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. what did you replace alcohol with on camping trips and on the boat and that kind of thing that you said you couldn't Lime imagine? Topo Chico. Okay. Because it's still like, I liked the experience of drinking too, like the feeling of the wine glass in your hand, the cold bottle of beer. So that's why I love Topo Chico because it comes in those glass bottles and also kombucha, which is like... I joke to my husband because they're expensive and I will not make my own. Don't, don't come at me with that. Like I'm not that person, <laughs> but they're like $4 a bottle and my husband and I'm like, well, I don't drink anymore. So yeah, <laughs> this is going to be fine. Oh my gosh. I like it. That's a good, that's a really good replacement. Okay. And then last two current favorite book and current favorite, favorite podcast. Um, Probably this one. The Alice of the Heart by Brene Brown okay. because I'm trained and certified in her work. And it's just, it's such a great overview of all emotions, feelings, and experiences for people to have language around. Um, favorite podcast? Um, mm, I, 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 it probably hers because it, I am listening to it as it goes along with the book. Um, what else? I really love uh, This American Life. Me too. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yep. NPR puts out so many great ones. So, um, Andrea, thank you so much for being on the birth story podcast today and telling all the things. It was great to get to know you and hear this. And you have a really great story and I'm sure you are incredible on a live stage. So I would love to kind of jump in on a retreat or see you speak live someday about your story. Um, it was really special to interview you and I'm so glad that my audience has been able to learn from you today. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for being part of the birth story family and listening to this episode on Tuesdays. Every week, our doula diaries, little snippets and tidbits from my week, along with some teaching and education And then on Thursdays, we meet here for our birth stories and our expert speakers. So thank you for being here and listening to the podcast twice a week. And if you are left wanting more, like Heidi, I've listened to all the episodes, I've read your entire book, then I hope you will meet me in Birth Story Academy and let me be your online childbirth educator to prepare you for your hospital birth, no matter what that looks like. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up 
plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.